Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people, Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up out of Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death the men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought from the Amalekites, brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for this opportunity to preach and proclaim your word to these people whom you have set under the sound of my voice. Lord, I am desperate for you in need of you to guide my tongue and my mind so that I would speak with clarity, so that I would preach this message as you have placed it upon my heart in a way that would glorify you and grow your people and draw people who don't know you to see a a biblical picture of who you are. Help me to steward this moment well. Help me to preach as unto you. Help your people to listen as unto you. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Well, peace be with you. My name is Jamal, and I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn Community Church. And if you are a guest here, we just want to say welcome, and we are glad you are here. Uh, Today we are starting a new series on the life of David. David is a, a key figure in the scriptures. Um, Over 600 times is his name mentioned in the Old Testament, 60 times 
in the New Testament. He is an interesting character, a very uh, complex, a, a great study of just human nature, as well as just what it means to be one who is chosen and who is, is called by God. As we preview his story, we're going to see that David, David is a lover. He is a, a husband. He is a warrior. He is a fugitive. He is a, a king. He is a sinner. He is a father. He is a, a caretaker. And ultimately, he is a a messianic forebearer, as one historian rightly wrote, uh, David, the account of David, is the first human being in world literature. I mean, his story shows us our own humanness, our own creatureliness. It shows us our own brokenness. It reminds us that in the Bible, there is only one true hero and one person who can save the world and make the world right with God the Father, and that's Jesus. But before we get to David's life, we want to look at 1 Samuel 15 because it is important as we look at his life to see the narrative that has been going on. We are introduced to, to two main characters here. One is a man named Samuel which whom this book is, is named after. Samuel is a, a prophet. He's not perfect, but he is an upstanding man of God. He is chosen by God to hear God's voice and to speak on God's behalf. And the second person is a man by the name of Saul. Saul is the current king of Israel in 1 Samuel 15. And just saying king of Israel, that's a phrase that, that really... Uh, should not be said. God was the true king of Israel. Israel was a theocracy overseen and led by God. But Israel rejected God, wanting to be like all the other nations, wanting a king. So God chose a king by the name of Saul. And when you read the story, you see that God did. He placed his love on Saul. He, he called Saul out of a, a place of obscurity to lead his people, to steward it well, but throughout Saul's story, we see that Saul is not going to steward this kingship well. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, we see that Saul is going to make an offering that is not acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. He's not going to listen to the voice of the Lord. We're going to see in 1 Samuel 15 that Saul is going to harden his heart towards the Lord. Today, we're going to see that he's going to walk in self-deception and ultimately have his kingdom ripped from him. But if you're watching and you know the biblical narrative, you can't help but to answer or ask the question, why in the world would David be chosen as king? And as the scripture says, be a man after God's own heart when David in many ways is like Saul. David fell too, if not worse, committed adultery and, and murder and took a census that he shouldn't have taken. So why does God rip the kingdom from a fallen human being only to give the kingdom to a fallen human being? And how in the world can he say that David is a man after my own heart? But what we're going to learn today is this. It's success. And this is what Saul was seeing as success. Success is not big victories and big monuments. Success is our ability to own our sin and to take it before the Lord with a broken and contrite heart. And the thing that ultimately separates David from Saul is that when Saul falls, 
He does not own his stuff. When people confront him, he does not own his stuff, but rather he allows his heart to become hard and life to become about him. Whereas David, though he falls, like we all do in a very grievous way, David, as fall as he as, as hard as he falls, he repents hard. He repents hard. Great, David's greatest success was not defeating Goliath. David's greatest success was not, was not being a great musician. David's greatest success was not being his creative leader's greatest. David's greatest success was that when David fell and was confronted of his sin, that he stood before God as naked and he allowed God to clothe him with his righteousness by faith. And success as a Christian is not the things that we do and achieve. It's not our religiosity. It's not our ability to to make sacrifices. It's even not our ability just to obey. Our greatest success is the fact that when we fall, when we stumble, when we fall short, that we trust God enough to take off of our clothes, to take off of our self-righteousness, to take off of our fear and our shame and our guilt and our insecurity and to allow him to clothe us with his righteousness found in his son, Jesus. There's three things I want to show us in this text real quick. The first is this. First thing we want to notice about this text is that God gives Saul an assignment. And his assignment, as the text says, is to punish the Amalekites, to completely wipe them off the face of the earth. And this is troubling. He, he says, listen, kill everyone, men and women, boys and girls, and all sorts of cattle. And we listen to this and we see this and we are troubled. We're saying, how can a God who is good make such a commandment? And I think we, we do this and we put God on the the judgment seat because we don't see the seriousness of sin. Sin is a a cosmic treason against a perfect, loving, and holy God. And one sin is enough to separate us from him for eternity. But we also see in the story that God gives his reason. The Amalekites had two things against them. The first thing that they had against them was that they attacked God's chosen people when they were leaving Egypt. And when they had no defenses, they tried to to ambush and attack them. The second thing is that the Amalekites, as this passage says, they are incredibly wicked. In fact, the king, Agag here, at the end of the story, we'll see God is going to pronounce judgment through Samuel. And Samuel says that your mother today is going to weep for you just like many women, many women weep because you unjustly killed their children. So what is this? God telling Saul to wipe out the Amalekites is an act of justice. It's an act of justice. God is telling Saul, listen, you are not going to be a king like every other nation. And my people are not going to be a kingdom like every other nation. Every other nation is imperialistic. When they go and take over a city or a country, they're going there. And at the end of the day, most of the time, it is about money, wealth, 
power, and status. Keep the people alive, make them slaves, build your kingdom on the back of others. God is saying, this is not how my kingdom works. This is not why you're going to take over the Amalekites. No, this is an issue of justice. This is payback for what they did to you, my children. And I want the nations to know who I am. But this is also payback because they are wicked and they unjustly kill people. So this is an issue of justice. This is not a jihad. This is not God saying, kill the infidels. That's what separates this uh, from, from jihad or, or this, this, this uh, Muslim uh, kind of uh, conquest of killing anyone who does not agree with your doctrine or your God. No, we see in this text that God actually spares a group called the, the Kenites. In verse 6, then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. So there's a group called the Kenites that's in the midst of the Amalekites and they go and warn the Kenites, get out of here. We're about to attack the Amalekites. Now the Kenites were not God-fearers. They did not worship Israel's God, but God was merciful to them because at this time he did not have beef with them. So the thing we want to understand in this text is that this is an act of justice. This is not people fighting on behalf of God. This is God fighting on behalf of his people, assuring victory as his people are his instruments. But the thing we really want to understand is that we are the Amalekites. We are the Amalekites. All of us are the Amalekites. We deserve God's wrath. Every single human being, because of the fall, we are born into sin and shaped by our iniquity. But here's the good news. And here's why Christians uh, can never say that God has told us to, to, to completely wipe someone off the earth. It's because God has poured out his wrath on his son, Jesus. Jesus has taken the final blow of God's wrath. And under the new covenant, Jesus tells us to, to love our enemies. So this was a particular call for a particular place in a particular time. This is not something that any Christian group can justify or do today. We want to look to Jesus today and to thank him that he has spared our lives by his blood and by his grace. And we want to see the cross and to see that God pours out his justice on his son so that we can have a relationship with him. But this is also a reminder as well as a, a, a warning not to delay if you are not in the covenant community with Christ, if you have not given your life to him. This is a reminder that, that God is merciful. He is compassionate. He is long-suffering. But there will come a day when judgment is coming. And that we don't want to take his mercy and his, his compassion for granted. 300 years since the time they attacked Israel. 300 years God waited and saw this wickedness prevail. 300 years they had a chance to repent as they heard about this neighboring nation that worshiped a, a God who gave them land and conquest and milk and honey and who wanted the nations to know him. 300 years they, they said tomorrow. And tomorrow came judgment. This reminds me of a poem called Tomorrow. Tomorrow 
He was going to be all that a a mortal should be tomorrow. No one should be kinder or braver than he tomorrow. On him, he would call and see what he could do tomorrow. Each morning, he stacked up the letters he'd write tomorrow. The world would have known him had he ever seen tomorrow. But the fact is, he died and he faded from view. And all that he left here when living was through was a mountain of things he intended to do tomorrow. This is a great reminder that God takes sin seriously. At the same time, he is merciful and compassionate. But we should not delay if you are here under the sound of my voice and you're saying, tomorrow I'm going to give my life to Jesus. Tomorrow I'm going to accept his grace. I want to tell you today, don't wait till tomorrow. Come today. You cannot get yourself together. You you cannot put yourself together and then offer yourself to God. God wants you just as you are today to come in your weakness, to come in your mess, to come in your lostness and to admit that you are, but that Jesus is enough to save you and that through him there is forgiveness of sin. And if you're here today and you're a Christian and your heart is hard and you are just going through the motions of Christianity saying, tomorrow I will put to death these these sins. Tomorrow I will seek to to live for Christ in a way that is sincere. Tomorrow I will adore him as Savior and Lord. This is a reminder today to not put off tomorrow. You can have peace now. You can have true joy now. You can find true, true commitment in him. Second, we see in this text, that Samuel confronts Saul for his half-hearted obedience. We see in verse 8, tells us that Samuel kept the king of the Amalekites alive, and Saul kept the king of the Amalekites alive, as well as we see that he kept the, the fattened cattle alive. In verse 10, we see that the Lord is deeply grieved, says that he regrets that he even allowed Saul to be king. This is an anthropomorphia. what we call anthropomorphic language. That is a human being giving God human-like qualities. This is God uh, coming down to our level. Though he knew Saul would do this and he knows all these things, he is emotionally involved with the human story. He regrets, he is grieved that this king disobeyed his command. This allows us to experience God. And to know what grieves his heart. Then in verse verse 13, we see that Samuel comes to Saul and he says, uh, 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 as soon as Saul sees him, that Saul says, God bless you. Peace be with you, Samuel. And Saul says to Samuel, listen, I did everything that God asked me to do. And this is a funny kind of interchange here because Samuel pretty much says, shh, 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 so, shh. So I was like, no, Sam, you should have seen it. Shh, shh, shh. Saul, what's that I hear? Is that, is that the bleeding of sheep I hear? Is that sheep being prepared for the slaughter? So we see that, 
that Saul thinks that he has done what God has commanded, that he has fulfilled God's mission, but he is self-deceived. He has not done what God has commanded. He has taken God's word lightly. He has done what he wants to do, and he thinks that God is okay with it. He does not see the seriousness of a king taking God's word as God gives it to him because he is king over Israel. And if he goes astray, then Israel goes astray. This is a serious matter. Samuel says enough. But notice Saul does three things here that I think that we often do when it comes to sin. Number one, he minimizes his sin. He counts it as a victory that he has been faithful to God when in actuality, He has not done what God has asked him to do. He minimizes, and we do it too. We find excuses. Well, at least I didn't do this. Or I may be doing X, Y, and Z, but at least I'm not a murderer. And a murderer say, well, I may have murdered somebody, but at least I'm not Hitler. And then Hitler says, well, I may have been over all these murders. I don't know what Hitler says. There's no excuse. It's like, that's that's it. That's where it kind of ends. But we just kind of pass these things on and we minimize our sin. The second thing we see here, that he does blame shifting. Samuel confronts him on his sin in verse 15. And what does Saul say? He says, the soldiers did wrong. Doesn't want to own his sin. He's pointing to someone else. And this is a part of the human heart. This is a part of our story. Since Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what did they do? They pointed to everyone else as responsible. They pointed to each other. Adam, the woman you gave me. Eve, it was the serpent. No one wants to own. No one wants to own their own sin. And when we're caught, when we've done our dirt, Many times we don't want it on it either. We're looking for a way to shift blame. Some even blame it on God. This is the way God has, has made me. God is allowing this temptation to happen. James says, no, you can't blame it on God. It's your own desire that entices you. Third, we see that Saul, once Samuel really confronts him, really gets into him, that he gives a, a, a sort of repentance, but it's a very disingenuous repentance. It's a very rushed re- repentance. Verse 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's commands and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Yes, I sinned. I messed up but I need you to come back with me to worship in front of all of Israel so that they will know that you and I are cool. Then he goes on in verse 30. Saul replied again, I have sinned, but please, listen, honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Saul is more concerned about his reputation and what people are going to think about him than his sin. He has just committed a grievous sin. And this isn't just one time. This has kind of been a summary of his kingship, going back to 1 Samuel chapter 13. And each time he's caught, rather than own the fact that he has sinned against the holy God and disobeyed the God of this universe, he wants to rush past what he's done 
and be affirmed by people. To save face. And we all are tempted to do that. It's hard when we know we've done wrong, right? We want to minimize it in our own mind, justify, well, it's not the end of the world. We want to blame shift. You ever got in an argument with someone when you know that you're wrong? But rather than just own it and say, you know what? I sinned. I made a mistake. Your mind starts trying to think about how they've wronged you. And now you, well, you know, five years ago, you did the same thing to me. I promise we were in the same, same situation. It was a Thursday night. And now you're going to try to hold this against me? And then we get going back and forth, blame shifting, looking to kind of equalize everything so that we can have a sense of identity and security. And that's what Samuel's doing. And underneath all of this is really pride and ego, pride and ego. In this text, we see that just before Samuel comes to talk to Saul, that Saul builds a monument to himself. And perhaps this shows a bit of Saul's heart. They win the war. He doesn't do what God calls him to do. He goes to celebrate the victory by building a statue of himself. This is Israel. This is a place where God has commanded his people to not build statues and idols so that people will fall and, and worship them. Why? Because at the end of the day, it's all about self-protection. And at the end of the day, he's blame-shifting because he, he wants to be accepted. Perhaps there's insecurity there. Perhaps there's fear that he's not measuring up, so he wants to remind people that he is measuring up and that he is good enough, that he is smart enough, so he can't own it. He can't own his sin because he, he, maybe people won't think he's smart enough. Maybe people won't think that he's a good enough king. Maybe they'll think that, that someone else should be king, so he's putting up all these walls. He's protecting himself. He's afraid. Perhaps there's shame. Perhaps there's guilt. Or perhaps he really has lied to himself enough so he is just justifying his sin. Some of us in here, we've lied to ourselves enough about our sin that now we justify it. And we think that God is okay with the very things that he has told us that he's not. We think that holding a grudge and not forgiving someone is okay because they hurt us. They hurt us. We, we think that that stepping outside of our marriage to have another relationship with someone else because we're not satisfied in, in the bedroom is okay. We think that binge drinking on, on, on a, a Saturday and, 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 and partying and, and losing control is okay because after all, I'll be there on Sunday. It's okay. This isn't, this isn't a big deal to God, me. God purchased me with his blood, his grace and cover it. I'll, I'll grow older. I'll get out of this stage. This is just a, a part of being young. It's okay. I mean, after all, I'm not killing anyone. I, after all, this isn't a big deal. Third, notice Samuel gets to the, the heart of the matter in verse 22. Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in birth? Offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord, as much as in listening to the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the 
the fat of rams. God is saying, no, listening to God's word is important, Saul. You can't just You can't just do what you want to do and think that it's okay with God because you're doing a religious service. You can't hide behind your your religious ways. You can't say that it's okay that I didn't kill the king and it's okay that I didn't kill the cattle because at the end of the day, I'm going to take some of these sheep and goats and we're going to make sacrifices. No, the reason Saul did what he did was because of power. And because of the fear of people, he wanted to be seen right in the eyes of his soldiers. And and what he forfeited was something that was far greater, far more satisfying, and far more beautiful. And that's being seen right in God's eyes. That's why when Samuel comes to him, he reminds him of his lowliness, of his smallness. He says, listen, Saul, when God found you, you were small in your own eyes. There was a humility about you. There was a, a brokenness about you. But what has happened? You're no longer small in your own eyes. You want to be big in the eyes of other people. He's saying, Samuel, Saul, listen. As God's man, as God's king, find your identity in the fact that you were chosen by him. The fact that you are loved by him. The fact that that you are complete in him. Proverbs says that the fear of a man, the fear of man is a snare. And it's a snare for us all. So what do we do with this text? Two things. First, this text calls us to do the deep work of heart work. And that is to fight self-deception. We all are self-deceived. Every single one of us probably has an area in our life or a thought process that we have that is, that is protecting. That's protecting our image before other people. And some of us in here, we are are living and and, and walking in sin, and we won't find freedom because we care about what people think about us more than we care about what God thinks about us and how he saved us and clothed us in his son's righteousness. So we rather suffer and and, and sin and, and give up in believing that God can free us from the sin than come clean with our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, this is an area I need prayer and accountability, and this is an area that I need to trust God more. See, the gospel, man, the gospel enables us to own our humanness. My community group leaders is here, and hopefully they don't mind me sharing this. But I think that it would make the point. Uh, This week, I was out of town for four days. My wife was here with the kids. One of my kids threw a temper tantrum right when it was time to leave community group. It was one that my wife had not seen before with this particular child. And so I'm away on retreat doing some things for the church and I see this text message about how brutal this, tanger, this temper tanger was. And my initial response was to think of a crafty text message to send my group in order to protect my image as a father. And then I reminded myself that there's no need to do that. I can own the fact that my kids are human and that I am not a perfect father and that we're figuring it out. And that my righteousness is not found in what anyone thinks about me. My righteousness is found in what God thinks about me. And he says that I am his child. And so rather than try to defend myself, 
And rather than try to put up a wall in an image, I can be honest and naked first before God and then before his people. And you can too. That's the freedom of the gospel. The worst things that have ever been said about you were already said and they were already condemned on the cross. You're a sinner. You're fallen. You're a human. You're going to make mistakes. But Christ died for your mistakes. And in God's sight, you are his righteous and beloved child. He sings over you. He rejoices over you. You can live a life that amidst your fallenness while pursuing his son and growing in obedience and holiness. That's the difference. Between Saul's life as a whole and David's life, David makes some egregious sins. He does a lot of dirt. He's very complicated. But God says, Acts chapter 13, these words, a summary of David and Saul's life. Verse 22, after removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified it concerning him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. How in the world is that possible? See clause. He will do everything I want him to do. What do you mean? Did David do everything that God wanted? No, he didn't. But when he fell, he got up and he pursued God's will. And he passionately cried out to God without rushed repentance. He owned it. Against you and you only have I sinned. Create in me a clean heart. Renew in me the right spirit. And he had accountability and he allowed someone to speak into his life. Gospel frees us. We can be naked before the Lord. And we can confess our sins before him and through his spirit be empowered to grow progressively to look more like Jesus Christ. Take down your wall. That's what I'm calling you to do today. Own your humanness. Own that you are a child of God, you belong to him, but that you don't have it together, you haven't figured it out, and because of Jesus, that's okay. Look at this summary in Hebrews chapter 10. Second, I want to praise God for Jesus who perfectly obeyed and perfectly made the sacrifice. This is speaking of Christ. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, so when Christ came into the world, he said, this is what the author is applying a psalm to Jesus. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. This is Christ saying, it is written about me in a scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice and had perfect obedience. And that's where my righteousness is found. And that's where your righteousness is found. To obey is better than sacrifice. And, and for some of us, we obey well, but we're not willing to make sacrifices. For others of us, we don't obey, and we uh, think our sacrifices will make us right with God. And God says, no, it's obedience and sacrifice. And Jesus perfectly obeyed and made the necessary sacrifice so that we could be free. And so that we can be an authentic community, a community that the world looks in and says they're, they're messed up. They, they fall short. 
but they look at each other in the eye, they own their sins, and they look to God's word. They own their stories. They look to God's word. They own their weights and their shortcomings. They look to God's word. They speak into each other's life with a vulnerability and authenticity that's attractive. And that's what's attractive about David. And that's why I'm looking forward to this series. The night when Christ was betrayed, he took bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. The same way he told the disciples, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for you. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, Christian, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. We touch this bread and we're reminded that Christ is real. We drink this juice and we, uh, or wine and we remind ourselves of this new covenant under his blood. We sing boisterously and uh, to the Lord and with each other to remind ourselves that the worst things about us has already been said, has been taken to the cross, it's been buried, and we have been risen anew with Jesus Christ. And we walk in freedom, not fear, guilt, or shame. If you're not a Christian, we're going to ask you not to partake in this meal, but rather to, to take Christ. Those in the front, you can come to the front to take communion. In the back, you take communion in the back. Gluten-free communion is to my left. Let's reflect on Christ's sacrifice and rejoice in the success that we have because of him.